Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, April 29th, 2016. A little bit of an augmented format today. Kind of grinding on a singular topic, if you would. From ugly to good. Yeah, kind of work our way backwards. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to open the Bible and compare with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying and whose, you know, small group curriculum we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. And yeah, I think instead of is the right word there. And uh, over and again, we find that what they're preaching and teaching doesn't square with what God's Word says. Now, if you are familiar at all with postmodern liberalism or even modernist liberalism, yeah, then you're aware with the fact of the fact that well, those branches of the visible church, uh, are, they hate, and I mean this absolutely hate and detest the concept that uh, Christ died, you know, and was punished in our place for our sins. Yeah, they they can't stand it, and and it's. Um, well, they've come up with a clever way of getting around it. And, and you may have heard the phrase before. The phrase is atonement theories. Are you familiar with th- atonement theories? Apparently, there's all kinds of theories about the atonement. But we're going to debunk that a little bit today and uh, make the point that there is only what God's Word reveals about what Christ accomplished while hanging, uh, you know, hanging on the cross, bleeding and dying and suffering. Yeah, there's only what Scripture reveals. There are no theories. Yeah, there is revelation, and then there's stuff that just isn't, is a good way to put it. So that's where we're going to spend our time today. We're going to start off with a, uh, a an emergent church update. We're going to look at Rob Bell, who recently appeared on the Jay Moore program, and, um, yeah, the Moore Stories podcast, and we'll listen to them as they, uh, you know, basically muse about what Christ was doing on the cross. And um, I, I don't think Jay Moore, you know, is a, a Christian, at least not that I could tell. But, uh, you know, he, he's interacting with Rob Bell regarding this idea that Christ died for our sins. 
And uh, we'll take a look at what they say. And then what we're going to do is we're going to listen to the opening argument by Brian Zond. Brian Zahn is another one of these postmodern, you know, liberal emergent types. And he recently debated Michael Brown on the topic, you know, of is God a monster, kind of a monster God thing. And we'll listen to his uh, opening argument where he spells out this idea, apparently, about atonement theories. Um, yeah, again, there, there are no theories of the atonement. There is only what God's word reveals regarding what Christ was doing on the cross. In fact, Scripture has to reveal it or we don't know. I mean, if we were living back then, you know, 2,000 years ago, and we were just outside the gates of Jerusalem and, uh, you know, and heading towards, uh, you know, the Temple Mount, and we saw Jesus suffering and dying between two uh, thieves on the cross, we wouldn't be able to tell you what, you know, without God's Word telling you what's going on, we'd just say, well, that poor fella... Yeah, the the Roman Empire really did him in. Yeah, that I mean, that's about all we'd be able to figure out. But God's word actually specifically reveals what Christ was doing on the cross. And we'll talk about the different pictures and motifs that Scripture reveals there, at least in brief, and talk on you know, the one that is most offensive, if you would. So, And then in, uh, when we're done with that, we'll take a break. It, again, augmented format today, not a normal... Uh, not a normal... Uh, episode in that sense. We'll take a break, and then we come back from the break. We're going to listen to a good sermon by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley titled The Promise of the Cross. The Promise of the Cross. And I think it makes a great juxtaposition uh, regarding some of the nonsense that we're going to hear in the meantime. So let's go ahead and get right to the program. And since we're starting with an emergent, you know, postmodern update, that requires us to do this. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Doug Paget. Yeah, sitting in today we have Brian Zond and Rob Bell, both of them on the timpani drums. This is their homage to uh, Strauss's also Sprock Zarathustra. Now you'll notice that they're being led by the spirit in this piece, and they're not subscribing to the limiting modernist definitions of notes, and wow, this is so avant-garde. Let's uh, listen in closely as they get ready to come to their crescendo here. Yeah, we're not exactly sure, but we think that somebody wasn't actually playing the trumpet. They were actually um, beating a dog and causing it to howl. Anyway, so uh, what we're going to be listening to to start off with is uh, Rob Bell's recent appearance on More Stories, M-O-H-R, Dan uh, Dan Moore's uh, podcast, as uh, Dan Moore and him muse about, well, Christ dying for our sins. Let's listen in. Who else? Okay, let me ask you this. Jesus died for your sins. No, he died because... He was killed. The Romans... He said heresy. He was convicted of heresy. He, he disrupted a system that There's made no a lot of people wealthy. Where I can have premarital sex because he goes up on a cross. This whole narrative that Christianity pushes, not you and I Christianity, teachings of and seeking of, it's, he, you know, 
He saves. He died for your sins. And then when I read the Bible, which I do often, and now I've got a kid's Bible, so it's broken down to a four-year-old intellect. Here, dinner. One of you is going to sell me out. The Romans say, hey, this guy, we're not making any money anymore. This guy's leading everybody away from our, uh, our merch table. He's kicking over the merch. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So he's convicted of heresy. Pilate's put in a spot. And then they, it's, his crime is on his cross, king of the Jews. Yeah. And Pilate said, no, no, no. No, he said he was king of the Jews. That's why he's convicted. And they were like, hey, I put it already. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? It's already written up there. But everybody always says he died for your sins. Yeah, actually, there's a reason why. And uh, this kind of goes to one of the things I started already to allude to. And that is is that if you were there witnessing the event itself happening in real time, a historical event, you wouldn't be able to ascertain the theology behind it. But here's the thing. In the, you know, in the historical narratives, we have some theology. This is absolutely true, and we have the historical narratives of Christ's passion and death for our sins. And the reason I say that is because, well, something like as simple as like First Corinthians chapter fifteen. Let me read it to you. First Corinthians fifteen, starting at verse one. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you. This is Paul. Uh, speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit, which you received, which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And are you ready? Here it is. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. You can throw into the mix Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, which is a fantastic passage. Second Corinthians chapter 5, um, verse 21, For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh huh. Yeah, so, you know, there's passages that talk about this. Isaiah 53 comes to mind as well, but we'll hold on to that one until we get to Brian's on. And so the idea is, is why do Christians say that Jesus died for our sins? Well, quite simply, because the theology behind the historical event is revealed in Scripture. And much of that theology is found, not exclusively, but much of it is found in the epistles as well as in the prophet Isaiah. What was Christ doing on the cross? Why is he dying? Why is he bleeding? Why is he suffering? Now, it's true that Jesus turned over the merchandise tables, that the, that the Jews hated him. They you know, basically uh, you know, found him guilty of blasphemy of you know claiming to be god and claiming to be the son of god and that's the reason uh, the presenting reason why they wanted him put to death but that doesn't explain the theology of why he's dying because jesus committed no sins so for uh you know for rob bell to sit there in a conversation with jay moore and jay moore's basically denying this idea that christ died for our sins and Rob Bell is saying, well, well, wait a second. You know, Scripture says that he did. Notice that, that Rob Bell is, seems to be in full agreement with Jay Moore here. Well, if you take the first thousand years of church history, they believe that the conquering of death was to put back the whole universe. They always saw it as an issue of the cosmos. The whole thing's out of whack. This is Judaism, too, though. The Old Testament. 
Yeah. So notice what uh, you know. What Rob Bell's oh, but see the first thousand years of Christianity, nobody talked about Jesus dying for our sins, which is patently false, by the way. With today's episode and the additional resources, I'll go ahead and link uh, to quotes from the church fathers where they talk about Jesus. Well being punished and dying for our sins, early church fathers. Well, it was always just something much, much bigger than just you and your sins. It was always about this whole thing being made right. And, of course, you can be a part of it. You can join in. You're invited to be a part of it. So even the idea that the whole thing gets shrunken down to you and your sins is actually a very American personal pizza thing. You know what I mean? The whole thing is about you. It's about personal. It's about, it's about as opposed to how it was understood, was the whole thing's out of whack. And it's all being made right, and you can be a part of that. Yeah, which biblical text says that, by the way, Rob? You know, I'd like to see where the apostles, you know, talk about, yeah, everything's being made right. Well, yeah, actually it is, new heavens, new earth, with the death and destruction of the current heavens and earth. Um, Yeah, it's weird, death and resurrection, major theme, major motif in Scripture. So, I mean, the way you're talking just doesn't make any sense. And when you work through your stuff, yeah. and when you become more generous, and when you forgive somebody who's wrong, you're just stepping into something that's way bigger than you. There's a passage, uh, oh, those who see through the eyes of a child shall have, uh, what is it, everlasting life? Through the eyes of a child, essentially, is the... Yeah. My son was born, I'm walking him in a... Uh, so having the eyes of a child, and then you'll have everlasting life? I'm, yeah... Can you be more specific? Which text says that that's what saves us is having the eyes of a child? His stroller through the neighborhood. And I'm smelling roses. One of my neighbors was playing piano. And I got Meredith Daniel in this little stroller. He's like five months old. And I'm showing him a rose and I'm explaining it to him. And I realize I can hear my neighbor playing piano. Probably played every day because I lived in that house. And I realized, I am just taking my time. Yeah. I'm here now. Yeah. And I went, oh, born again, pushing a baby. Yeah. I can live forever because he is my last name. He, capital H. Like, I got on this weird trip. Like, if you want you want to live forever, just have yeah. kids. You, you want to live forever, just have kids. I mean, we're going to deny that Christ died for our sins instead uh, we're going to believe we can just look through the world with the eyes of a child that somehow that means we have eternal life. Wow, blind leading the blind and Rob Bell not exactly, you know, just jumping in to actually say, hey, wait a second, here's what Scripture reveals about what Christ did for us on the cross. Nope, nope, even though you got a clear passage like 1 Corinthians 15 that says Christ died for our sins. Yeah, Rob, oh, no, no, it, it, uh, the, the ancients, you know, the whole first thousand years of Christianity, they were talking about, you know, the whole universe being put back together, and you can be part of it, yeah. Um, that's not exactly correct, but I think you get the point. Now, moving along, we're going to listen to uh, Brian Zahn in his recent uh, debate with Michael Brown where, you know, on, on whether or not God's a monster, and you're going to hear him ex- you know, literally explicitly talk about atonement theories now keep in mind again there are no theories of the atonement there is only what scripture reveals regarding what christ was doing on the cross and there are several primary ways in which scripture describes those we'll talk about that a little bit in a minute but uh, here's brian zahn to explain to us 
why this idea of penal substitutionary atonement is somehow evil, wicked, and is and is a newcomer regarding atonement theories, which it is not, because it's actually clearly revealed in Scripture hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked the earth by the prophet Isaiah. But here's Brian Zond. At the heart of the Christian faith, there stands a cross and the crucified God whom we worship. The cross is the defining moment of the Christian faith. For being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. When we look at the cross, we do not say, this is what God does. When we look at the cross, we say, this is who God is. Yeah, in some sense, that's true. Now, in our scriptures and in our creeds, we confess that Christ died for our sins. I want to be very clear about that. I confess that Jesus Christ died for our sins. Yeah, but how you define the word for is quite interesting. But what do we mean by that? This is the seductive lure of atonement theories. Attempts to explain what we mean when we make the seminal Christian confession that Christ died for our sins. Yeah, you got that backwards. It should be the question of what does Scripture mean when it says that. ...aware of at least eight different atonement theories. I could talk about Christus Victor, ransom, recapitulation, moral influence, nonviolent identification, anti-sacrificial satisfaction, and penal substitution. So, yeah, the question is, um, which biblical motifs can you talk about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can talk about redemption because, well, Scripture clearly talks about how Christ's death is a redemption, which, by the way, is a slave term. Yeah, it's a term you know, to purchase somebody off the slave block with the uh, purpose of setting them free. We can talk about that because Scripture talks about that. We can also talk about substitution because Scripture talks about that. We can also talk about penal substitution because Scripture talks about that. We could talk about the sense in which Christ's death is a victory. Scripture talks about that. See, there's no such thing as an atonement theory. That's a myth. Instead, there are, well, different aspects of what Christ accomplished on the cross clearly revealed for us in Scripture. We're to believe what God's Word said. Yeah, about the atonement. Mm-hmm. We're not to smorgasbord, you know, smorgasbord it together and sit there, well, I like this revelation about what Christ did on the cross, but not this one. No, 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 no. So notice, he's lumping it all together into atonement theories, which is the first move. The question is, again, what does Scripture reveal Christ was doing on the cross. There are numerous theories on what we mean when we say that Christ died for our sins, these tidy little explanations. Some I'm sympathetic toward, others I have problems with. I think some are quite crude, and that the ugliest of these theories goes... And notice, he's in the driver's seat. This is about what he believes, not what God's Word reveals. ...by the somewhat clumsy name of penal substitutionary atonement theory. 
penal substitutionary. It's not a theory. It's actually a revelation from God about what Christ was doing on the cross. Theory claims that God required the killing of his son in order to satisfy his wrath, appease justice. You mean like the biblical text that says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins? Yet Scripture actually says that. That's not a man-made theory. That's, a, that's directly what Scripture says. And gain the necessary capital to forgive our sins. Penal substitutionary atonement theory was first developed by John Calvin and is an essential aspect of Calvinism. Yeah, no, actually, that's impossible. Yeah, because penal substitution is clearly taught by the prophet Isaiah. And, you know, kind of numerically, he predates Calvin by, wow, way more than a thousand years. By the way, it's uh, Hebrews 9.22 that says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's the word of God. That's not the opinion of Calvin or Luther or any of those guys. That's what Scripture says. So let's take a look at what Isaiah says. We're going to start in Isaiah chapter 52, starting at verse 13, and we'll keep reading through Isaiah 53. I'll point out the important words along the way, and you are going to see that this text teaches that Christ is punished in our place. Mm-hmm. That's what it says. And uh, and so it teaches, well, Christ's vicarious satisfaction, his penal punishment, substitutionary, yeah, in our place, atonement for our sins. Yeah, here's what it says, Isaiah 52, starting at verse three, uh, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? By the way, how do you know definitively this is about Jesus? Well, Acts chapter 8 makes that very clear. Go ahead and read the story of the account of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. He was reading this passage of Scripture, and he specifically asked who it is about. And Philip tells him it's about Jesus. Yeah, this is about Jesus. So who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the musar, that's the Hebrew word, punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Uh, it's like Second Corinthians chapter five, which I read out just uh, you know just a few minutes ago. God made him to be sin 
who knew no sin, so that we might be the righteousness of God. So, with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's, by the way, I mean, the cross reference to the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, the, the cross reference there is Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is a picture in type and shadow of Christ's death for us. And what what happens on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16? Well, the high priest lays on the sacrificial animal the sins of the people. And so here, Isaiah 53, verse 6, we see the Lord lays on Jesus the iniquity of us all in much the same way the high priest would lay on the sacrificial animal on the Day of Atonement, the sins of the people. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. There it is again, stricken for their transgression. And they made his grave with the wicked and, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Whose will was it? The will of Yahweh, the one God of Israel. Uh huh. He has put him to grief. God put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, his soul's a guilt offering. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness. Here we have the imputed righteousness of Christ doctrine taught by Isaiah the prophet hundreds of years before Jesus walks the earth. He shall make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You see, we've got the great exchange there. We are accounted righteous by grace through faith in Christ. He is is considered to be the sinner. God made him to be sin, right? And he is punished in our place, bearing our iniquities. Verse 12, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 52 and 53 definitively teach penal substitution. He's numbered with the transgressors we are accounted righteous. He is pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The punishment, the musar, that brought us peace was upon him. Right. We, instead, then, are accounted righteous, forgiven, our iniquities atoned for because of what Christ has done. He standing in our place. And all of this... More than a thousand years before John Calvin walked the earth. Weird. You know, what? where is this Brian Zahn getting his church history from? Again, there's no such thing as an atonement theory. Nope, not that at all. There is only what God's word reveals regarding what Christ was doing on the cross. 
Now, it did first appear in a different form in the 11th century from Anselm as he was working from his... Yeah, Anselm um, may have been working from the prophet Isaiah, but I believe Isaiah predates Anselm by more than a thousand years. The evil concept of the offended honor of God. And not to turn this into a lecture on church history, although that might not be a bad thing entirely... Uh, yeah, it'd be better if you turn this uh, into a lesson on biblical revelation. should be pointed out that the early church fathers and the early Christians taught nothing like penal substitutionary atonement theory. Strange, because with the additional resources from today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, I will be reproducing a, a post where we look at what the church fathers said about what Christ was doing on the cross. And boy, it looks a lot like, hmm, sounds a lot like penal substitutionary atonement. You know why? Because they were quoting the Word of God. We continue. They taught is generally described as Christus Victor or Christ the Victor, where in the, not just the death, but in the incarnation... The only way you can come up with that is by cherry-picking quotes from the church fathers rather than looking at the totality of what they taught regarding Christ's death on the cross. Life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see Christ victorious over sin and death. But if you've grown up with penal substitutionary atonement, which you most likely have if you have grown up in an evangelical world in North America. I, if you've grown up actually with a pastor who preached the gospel and proclaimed the Bible. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's weird. It's If you grew up in a Bible-believing church, you've probably heard that Christ was, well, yeah, crushed for our iniquities, bruised for our transgressions, you know, stuff like that, right? understand. I'm very sympathetic that that can become the sole lens at which you look at understanding the cross, and you can... Yeah, no, actually, it's not, because you can talk about Christ's victory. I mean, it's, it's there in the epistles. You can talk about redemption. It's there in the epistles. There are other facets to Christ's death on the cross theologically and doctrinally in the written word of God. Those aren't theories. Again, that's revelation. Use it for the gospel itself. I remember how strange it was. Yeah, weird, because Paul says the gospel itself, 1 Corinthians 15, is that Christ died for our sins. Yeah, it's he's really saying the same thing as Isaiah, don't you think? I first began to encounter people who did not subscribe to penal substitutionary atonement theories. Interestingly enough, the first... Yeah, the only way you can do that is by, number one, making it a theory when it isn't. It's a revelation. And then number two, saying, oh, you know, take your pick. Which uh, atonement theory do you like, you know? The person I ever heard of that rejected that theory of the cross was none other than Charles Grandison Finney. Which ultimately, yeah, and Finney was a Pelagian heretic, which shouldn't surprise you. His anthropology was heretical, for real. The point that, you know, he was hardly some emergent Christian hipster that was afraid to, you know, be hard on sin. So if the idea is you have to believe in penal substitutionary atonement theory to really preach against sin, we'll tell that to Charles Finney because he didn't. Yeah, I don't consider Finney a brother in Christ at all. He was a Pelagian heretic. And his methods were, well, you know, 
totally denied the efficacy of God's word. Uh, he rejected that. Now, reducing the mystery of the cross to a theory is problematic to begin with because first... Yeah, claiming that people are reducing what Christ was doing on the cross to a theory is duplicitous. There's no such thing as an atonement theory. There is only what God's word reveals what Christ was doing on the cross. Now, the question is, what does God's word reveal? It's not the gospel. The gospel is the story of Jesus culminating in the announcement that Jesus Christ is Lord. But No, it's not. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, let me read it again. 1 Corinthians 15 makes that very clear. Here's what he says. Paul, writing to the church of Corinth, Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preach, unless you believed in vain. So Paul, pay attention. Paul says, I'm going to preach the gospel to you. Ready? Here it is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Yeah, scriptures like Isaiah 53, right? And he was um, uh, buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Yeah, it's fascinating here. Paul himself says that Christ died for our sins is the gospel. It's right there in 1 Corinthians 15. By the way, what uh, uh, Brian Zahn did, did there is, is called the proverbial fast one. He takes the broad definition of gospel. You can talk about gospel in a broad sense. We talk about the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of John, the gospel of Mark, right? That's talking about gospel in a broad sense. But in the narrow sense, gospel, the message of our salvation, the good news that we are proclaim as Christians, it's that Christ died for our sins. So what he does is he uses the broad sense of gospel to somehow nullify the narrow sense. And the narrow sense is the thing that he's actually talking about. Fascinating. We continue. Particularly abhorrent is the penal substitutionary atonement theory that turns the father of Jesus into a pagan deity... That's philosophy, and that's an aspersion. Again, you're not doing this from text. You're doing this from, well, you know, this idea of a theory. No, there's only what God's Word reveals. Only be placated by the barbarism of child sacrifice, and this will not do. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's, like, oh, it's, what a terrible God that is. Only be placated by the barbarism of child sacrifice. Yeah, Stephen Schalk's uh, claim that Penal substitution is the equivalent of cosmic child abuse. Hmm. Yet it says in Scripture, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus, praying in the garden uh, of Gethsemane, says, you know, if this cup should pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Yeah, he just ignores all of the biblical text and the biblical revelation in order to basically paint this picture, this ugly, terrible picture of a Greco-Roman deity demanding child sacrifice. But that's not what penal substitution is. That's your characterization of it. Words, the God who is mollified by throwing the virgin in the volcano or the God who is mollified by his son being nailed to a tree is not the Abba of Jesus. And yeah, it says you, but you've totally you know, created a straw man and then you're burning it, oh, quite diligently. 
But notice, you know what's missing in his presentation right here? Oh, yeah, that's right. Biblical texts. This is philosophy. This is speculative theologizing. It's creative theologizing. But Christians only get their doctrine from the written word of God. So this is all spinning out of his heart. Now the question is, who are you going to believe? Brian Zond or God and his word? Here is the death of Jesus, a kind of quid pro quo by which God gains the necessary capital to forgive. In other words, Calvin's economic model for the cross simply won't do. Yeah, yeah. Again, I have already demonstrated that this revelation regarding what Christ was doing on the cross predates Calvin by more than a thousand years. It's in the prophet Isaiah. How would it? It's also in Moses in Leviticus 16 in the Day of Atonement. Strange. The idea is that a payment is being made. So how does this work? Does God say, well, look. Yeah, and that talks about redemption. Yeah, Christ has redeemed us. Redemption is a payment talk. It's a word taken from the slave market. Yeah, so here, oh, how does this work? So notice he, Brian Zahn, has established himself as the authority over God's word. And he's not even reading any biblical text. He's just taking you know, out-of-context concepts regarding the atonement from Scripture and then shooting them down vigilantly using his reason. I want to forgive sins, but I'm going to get paid. And I want an innocent life. That's a given. And uh, let's see, I want his death to be painful. Uh, crucifixion, that'll do. Uh, but I want some torture beforehand. I want there to be some lashes uh, you know, a crown of thorns, that would be nice. I want a crown of thorns. And we might say, how many thorns will be enough to pay the price? Ten? Oh, no, there must be a minimum of 19 thorns in the crown for me to... Yeah, again, straw man here. Notice what he's, he's not doing. He's not reading any biblical texts. And if you say, well, no, it can't quite be like that. Uh, some of that was just, you know, human gratuitous violence. Then I'll ask the question, well, how does this division of labor work? Some of it is required by God and some of it's just... Yeah, how are we supposed to answer a question like that without biblical texts? The question is, what is revealed in Scripture? What does God say in the Bible regarding Christ's death on the cross? People being gratuitously wicked and violent, I don't understand this. So that when we say... Yeah, notice what he said. I don't understand this. I suggest you read a Bible and start trying to figure it out, figure it out from the biblical text. You know, that would be a great place to start. Christ died for our sins. Do we mean that God required the murder of his son in order to forgive? No. That maligns the character of God. I will suggest it means... Says you, according to your philosophy and straw man arguments... Something more like this. We violently send our sins into Jesus. Indeed, he bore our sins. We so your theory is we violently send our sins into Jesus. Do you have a biblical text that says that? Violently send our sins into Jesus Christ. He absorbs them. Where is this absorption, uh, you know, revelation actually taught in Scripture? I'd like to see that. You know, we sin our sins into Jesus. He absorbs them. Where are you getting this? 
In his dying breath, he reveals the heart of the Father. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And when Jesus prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do upon the cross, Jesus is not asking the Father to act contrary to his nature. Instead, Christ is revealing to us the very heart of God in that moment. Yeah, which biblical text says that when Jesus said that, he was revealing the very heart of God in that moment? This is all based on your speculations not on any biblical texts that say this. You see, in the, uh, in the four Gospels, we have the historical narrative. In the epistle and in epistles and the prophets, we have the theology that explains what Christ was doing in the historical narratives. Jesus takes our sin that was violently sinned into him down into death, shakes it off. On the third day, he is raised and comes back to us with the first word of the new world, peace be with you. Okay, so according to Brian Zahn, the, the, I guess this is the Taylor Swift uh, theory of the atonement. Yeah, Jesus, you know, he absorbs our sins because we send them into him. And then he goes down into death and, and just, you know, shakes it off. Sorry about that. I, I needed to do a gratuitous Fighting for the Faith musical interlude there to go with uh, Brian Zahn's brand new theory that he created regarding the atonement without any biblical text, the, uh, the shake it off theory. Yeah, weird. We must remember that before the crucifixion of Jesus is anything else, it is a catastrophe. It is the unjust, violent lynching of an innocent man. It is the murder of God. This now, I, I agree. That's true. And you can use biblical texts to prove that. Precisely how the apostles spoke of the crucifixion in the book of Acts. First reference to the actual Bible. Very good. Consider Acts 2.23. This Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Yep. Acts 3.15. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. That's correct. Acts 5.30. God raised up Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. Acts 7.52 The righteous one you have now betrayed and murdered. The death of Jesus upon the cross was a murder. It was a lynching. It was a mob killing. It was yeah, it's weird. Why is it that you're using Scripture here to support this point, but you weren't using Scripture to support your absorption, shake it off the theory? Yeah, there's, the reason for that is quite simple. It's not in the Scripture. 
lynching that God knew would happen because he had sent his son into our sinful system. And that's the sense in which it's a sacrifice. But even Plato knew that <laughs> that's the sense in which is a sacrifice. Hmm. That's weird because the Isaiah passage I just read says that, you know, Jesus's death is an offering, a sacrifice for guilt. Weird. Yeah, just, just how he's, you know, kind of like making his own nuances apart from texts. The thing would happen if a righteous man ever came among us because in his republic 400 years before Christ, Plato says, what would happen if a perfectly, perfectly righteous man came into our world? Plato says he would be scourged, fettered, and crucified. So there is this radical aspect of Christ exposing the sinful nature of our systemic sin that we call civilization. That is, Oh, yeah. So this, that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was exposing our systemic sinful natures, says no biblical text anywhere. ...end at the cross. So the death of Jesus was a sacrifice, but it was a sacrifice to end sacrificing, not to appease God. Because... Mm -hmm. Yet, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then you can talk about the, uh, you know, just the word helasmos itself, you know, propitiation and what it means. It's just strange. Here he's doing this all sans biblical text, except for that one little part where he put a little biblical text into there. Huh, yeah. So, I mean, it just basically kind of boils down to who are you going to believe? I mean, Brian Zond? And his atonement theory theory? Or are you going to believe what the biblical texts reveal about what Christ was doing and why he was there on the cross? It's, it's kind of like one or the other. You pick one. You know, who's your authority? Yourself or Brian Zond? Or is it God and his word? It's kind of that simple. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break, when we come back, we're going to listen to a good sermon to end the week off with Pastor Gervais Nicholas Charmley preaching on the promise of the cross. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theatre presents Church Day Select. Gentlemen, 
We have two basic suggestions for the design of this megachurch, and I thought it best that the architects themselves came in to explain the advantages of both designs. That must be the first architect now. Ah, yes, this is Mr. Wapcat of Finkle, Dewey, and Grime. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, yes, the design I've devised for the new worship center has all the aesthetic beauty of the Crystal Cathedral with all the advantages of modern technology. Um, the congregants step through these wide double doors here are carried along the corridor on a conveyor belt in extreme comfort past the youth worship basement, the adult worship rock and roll arena, the monster trucks masterium, and into the Sarlacc pit. The last 20 feet of the corridor are heavily soundproofed. The congregants slide down these chutes here into the open mouth... Excuse me. Hmm? Did you say Sarlacc Pit? Um, Sarlacc Pit, yes. Uh, are, are you proposing to digest our congregants over a thousand years? Does that not fit in with your plans? No, it does not. We wanted a simple megachurch, not a death trap. Ah, I see. I hadn't correctly divined your attitude towards the congregants. Uh-huh. You see, I mainly design occultist cathedrals. Yes, pity. Mind you, this is a real butte, not your average satanic mosque with people's beating hearts being ripped out of their chest or burning sulfur pits and convincing passers-by with burnt eyebrows. I mean... My life has been building up to this. Yes, and well done. But we did want a mega church and not a temple of doom. Well, may I ask you to reconsider? I mean, you've no idea how modern and relevant this place can be. Think, think of the tourist trip. No, no, it's not going to work for us. By the way, um, why the Sarlacc pit? Well, it's a pretty standard feature in all of my projects. You see, if you're going to preach heresy, you might as well not even bother waiting. Just send them to the afterlife quickly, is what I've always said. You mean heaven? <laughs> You are so funny! Thank you. You may leave now. Hypocritical puss buckets. My apologies, gentlemen. The next architect is Miss Parsons of Cromwell and Hague. Good afternoon, gentlemen. As you may notice from my scale model, the design takes us back to our ancestral Christian roots. Observe the white bell tower, the baptismal font, the organ at the back of the Stop. church, and... I beg your pardon? You've completely missed the whole point of the megachurch. Uh, you made something irrelevant. How is the seeker-driven church going to attract prospective customers? I, I mean, uh, congregants. Isn't church about worshiping Jesus Christ and hearing and learning his word? Jesus has got nothing to do with this. We need tithers, not decrepit old people clinging to their cracked leather Bibles and going on and on about how the music's too loud and how the preacher doesn't read enough scripture, complaining about the coffee shop in the main foyer and how they charge too much for a double chocolate spring hazelnut latte. But they still pay the fourteen ninety nine for the latte because the water in the drinking fountain tastes like arsenic. <clears throat> That's enough, Miss Parsons. The answer is no. Very well, gentlemen. Have a good day. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program 
and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. All right, we're back. Hour number two. Starting a little early today. I told you, it was augmented thing i wanted to kind of stick to the theme because it's so important yeah let's do this right though We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today. Sermon comes to us via Bethel Evangelical Free Church, Hanley Stoke-on-Trent in the United Kingdom. Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley presiding. He's going to be working his way through a biblical text regarding Jesus' crucifixion of all things. The name of the sermon is The Promise of the Cross. I would just simply ask you to compare what you heard from Brian Zond and his, well, atonement theories theory, and what Pastor Charmley proclaims regarding what Christ did for you for your salvation. I think you will find the contrast to be stark. So let me go ahead and back off on the music, and without any further ado, here's Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley and the promise of the cross. Let us turn in the scriptures to the gospel according to Luke chapter 23, reading from verse 13, Luke 23 from verse Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, 
You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city, and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Then he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they had requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, What will be done in the dry? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you, 
Today you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly, this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that sight, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. We trust God to bless the reading of his holy word. Our text, which we shall consider this evening, is found in Luke chapter 23 and verse 43. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We are here because Christ has been crucified. Because the cross is a reality in history, a reality that means that God does say these words to sinners, you will be with me in paradise. And to this man, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. What sort of man was he? Well, we are told that he was a criminal. We are told that he was a thief, a robber. Probably the word is better translated a robber with the sense of being a bandit. Somebody who robbed with violence, with no care at all for human life, simply to enrich himself. Here was a man who had done a great deal of wrong. A criminal under the condemnation of the law who was suffering the extreme penalty. And the Romans didn't just crucify any old person. They did so to those they wanted to make a particular public example of. Back in the day, if you were going down the River Thames, you would see pirates' bodies hung up in iron cages. If you go to the town of Rye in Sussex, there is, well all that's left is the top of the skull now, but there is this iron cage that once held a human body. Why? Because the man whose body it held was a particularly heinous murderer. In other words, you hung them up to say this is a terrible criminal and anyone who follows in his footsteps will suffer the same penalty this was a wicked man and he himself says he was a wicked man the Lord caught up with him he was crucified he was a wicked man but he was also a penitent man We indeed justly, he says, 
we receive the due reward for our deeds. I am here, he says, being crucified, and I deserve it. He was a penitent man. A man who had been brought to see that he was a wicked man. On the other hand, you have this other criminal who cried out, save yourself and us. He was a wicked man too. But he had not been brought to see his wickedness. He wanted to be delivered from death, but not from wickedness, not from sin. Many people, many criminals, regret getting caught. Very few regret having committed the crimes in the first place, and even fewer confess that they are suffering the penalty they ought to suffer. But this man did. He had come to hate his sin. He had come to see that he should be crucified for it. He had nothing, he could see nothing in himself to commend him. The other man did not think about his sin. But this man, he first of all looked inwards and said, I am a sinner, a wicked man. And then he looked outwards. As long as he only looked inwards, he only saw the condemnation and nothing more. To look inwards and to say, I am a sinner, is a gift that God gives people. But as long as you only look inwards, you are hopeless and helpless. But this man was able to look outwards as well. There was Jesus crucified. He looked outwards to Jesus crucified. And that made all the difference. That meant that he then spoke to Jesus. And he confessed Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong. There's no other man you can say that of. Nobody else. Only Jesus could. Can you say of him, this man has done nothing wrong. The whole of his history shows that he was sinless. Luke declares this. This is the man who did nothing wrong. Now, Luke is a great historian. He's a man who really, when he's looking into the history of Jesus, he made every effort to find people. And one of the people he found was Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, if anybody knows the wrong things that you've done, it's your mother. And absolutely guarantee that any human being, mother knows the wrong that he has done. But Mary confessed, my son Jesus has done nothing wrong. She agreed with that point. She could point out nothing he had done wrong. She confessed, he is my saviour. This man has done nothing wrong. He confessed Jesus as the sinless one. And then he confessed Jesus as Lord. 
Lord, he said, remember me. Now there was faith. There was a man hanging on a cross, condemned, abandoned, forsaken. A man being mocked and everyone else. His other criminal looked at him and said, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. In other words, if you won't save yourself, I know you're not the Christ. But this man was given eyes to see this is the Christ. This is the Lord. This is the King of glory who is coming again. If the world had known, if the world had known, if the rulers of this world had known who he was, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But this dying criminal saw him as the Lord of glory and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now he is suffering and dying. Now he seems to the world to be a nobody. But to this man, this is the king who is coming. This is the saviour, the deliverer, the Lord to whom he commits himself wholeheartedly Lord remember me and Jesus replied assuredly I say to you today you'll be with me in paradise not in some future future time some future day but today he forgave him he forgave him his sin This is Jesus who came to to die for sinners. This is the one of whom we read in that reading from Isaiah 53. The one who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And again Isaiah says, By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And now here is this man who has committed himself to Jesus. Whose eyes have been opened marvelously, wonderfully to see that this crucified one is a saviour for sins. And instead of saying with the other, save yourself and us, he sees. It is only by staying on the cross that Jesus can save anybody. It is because Jesus will not deliver himself from the cross that he will save his people from their sins. He says, in effect, Lord, stay on the cross to the end. And Jesus' reply assures him that he would stay upon the cross to the end so that he would die 
You will be with me in paradise. Christ must die to be in paradise that day. And there is also the assurance of that dying man that his death would not be long and drawn out. There was a mercy there as well. That his death would be quick. People could last for days being crucified. But this man is told, no, you will die quickly. And then you will be with me in paradise. Pardoned. Forgiven. I deserve to die, this man says. And Jesus' reply says, And in spite of your deserving, you will be saved. For he came to save his people from their sins. And he speaks these words, first of all, for that dying man. That he might know and rejoice. That he might know that his sins, which are many, are forgiven him. And he speaks the words to us as well. So that we may know that whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved through that death, through that offering, that sacrifice of Christ shall be saved from sin and delivered unto newness of life. And so the table is spread in remembrance of Christ's death for sinners. And so we this day remember that death that takes away our sin. That sacrifice that ends all sacrifice. That work that Christ completed. That indeed we all, all who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ shall be with him where he is. And that not just for a time, but forever. Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He believed. And he was given this wonderful assurance. And we too are assured. That whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That his blood is able. To cleanse from all sin. That he saves completely. The word is for us. The rejoicing is ours, for he has died for sins. Christ has died. Christ is risen again. All praise and glory to his name. Amen. Amen. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard, on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and by Carrie's death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.